Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. And remember, if you want to listen live, download the iHeartRadio app, download the TuneIn app, and just search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network, and you can listen to this program live. Also, if you want to watch the video of this podcast, check us out on YouTube, on Twitch, or on Periscope, and type in, you guessed it, Fantasy Sports Network. You'll find us there. Enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Going for the Green, presented by Daily Roto here on the Fantasy Sports Network. I'm here with Colin Drew. My name is Drew Dinkmeyer. I'll be in the host chair today talking about the Players' Championship, the the unofficial fifth major of the PGA Tour. Uh, before we get into breaking down this week's Players' Championship, we did want to let everybody know that we are running a promo this week, uh, 50% off your first month of Daily Roto Premium Golf. Use the promo code TPC. 2018 TPC 2018 at dailyroto.com slash premium to get access for a month and 50% off uh, your first month. Colin, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Drew. Uh, should be should be a fun event. I definitely like the Players Championship. I know different people have feelings on it, you know, that vary a little bit. I don't know if I consider it the fifth major or not, but I do think it's a really strong event and it makes for good television and should be awesome for DFS and I thought you know it was a nice warm up last week we had a really strong field at the Wells Fargo a little bit of carnage uh, the six of six numbers were definitely lower than we'd expect on uh, normal week uh, but sometimes those are the weeks that I end up doing better just because of the the style of play and I think overall it was a really strong week for the projections. Yeah, it was an incredible week for the projections. If you looked at, I think it was like the top five or six values, we had the winner in Jason Day. We had uh, two other top fives. We had a top 10 in our boy Francesco Molinari, who we always like. Um, Jason Day was the winner. And I know, Colin, you had some success uh, with the Jason Day-led team in the $50 three max over on DraftKings as you were able to take that home. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's happened to me a couple times this year. I ended up winning a little bit this week, but um, I did win the $50 three max, lost some other stuff. I just kind of had the the right lineup and the wrong GPP, uh, but he was 11% owned in that. And I think it's one of those examples where the kind of underlying strokes gain metrics for Jason Day weren't that great um, coming into the event and weren't even that great in the actual tournament as far as Strokes gained off the tee. I think he did gain some strokes there, but he was pretty much break even on approach and just really came through with his short game. And that's something that Jason Day has been doing for a long time. I know we had talked about it a little bit on the podcast, and he had a remarkable run of top 20 finishes. And so um, it was, I guess, a matter of time before you know he was able to, to pop one off. Um, in general, I felt like the content was so good that I should have done better. Like, like someone should have won a ton of money and just couldn't quite put all of the pieces together in the right tournament, but still a fun week all the same. Yeah, it was it was crazy. I know Adam Hadwin was another one of the top values that were up there, uh, Tyrell Hatton. It was it was a week that I felt like I should have done uh, well as well. I only played a few uh, high-dollar entry tournaments and just couldn't find a 6-6. Six six. Just found, again, a lot of 5-6s of um, and didn't play day on any of those teams. I really loaded up on the mid-tier on those. So a little bit of a missed opportunity, I felt, for myself. Uh, but let's turn the page from the Wells Fargo to uh, TPC Sawgrass and the Players' Championship. One of the nice things about uh, the Players' Championship compared to some some of the other, you know, quote unquote majors, if you want to throw it in that class or not, is the fact that it's the same course every year. We know what we're getting with uh, getting into that brings in some level of uh, historical data that we can look at. Uh, but in terms of breaking down the course, it's a par 72, about, you know, 7,100, 7,200 yards, somewhere in between there. The course is most known for the 17th hole in the Island Green that has been the home of so much carnage uh, over the years for so many different players. It's a course and it's a tournament in general, Colin, that we were talking about before we came on the air that just produces a lot of variance in results. And whether it's the strength of the field being so strong and so deep in terms of the talent that plays this event or whether it's um, the usual challenges with winds in Florida and all the water around the course making it so that big numbers can kind of pile up. 
it is a week where it's kind of hard to find consistent results from players in the past. It's not difficult to find course fit. I think when we talk about course fit, there's some things that stand out. But it's a, it's a strange tournament to talk about because the field strength is so strong and the variance in results over the years have been so wide. Yeah, and we talked about how the 6 of 6 percentages last week were pretty low, and that's something that we could definitely see this week um, because you know it, it is a strong field, but the, the cut is still there. And uh, the variance, who knows if it's from the depth of the field or just the, the thick rough and the water so that one bad shot typically might cost you a, a stroke or a half a stroke if you've got a really good short game. And here it could be a stroke. It could be two strokes. It could be a stroke and a half. And so... I think that is one reason that it, you could kind of have a justifiable variance associated with it. But I think we also, you know, obviously the Masters has a really strong field at the top end, um, but a lot of guys get into that field. It's a it's a shallower field in general, and then the bottom end of it is guys who have qualified or, or gotten passes from the committee, and, and therefore um, people are generally going to make the cut. And so there's less variance at the Masters just because of the depth of the field. I think you do see a lot of variance at the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship and the Open Championship. Um, and the Open Championship particularly is one that also has that weather. So not sure exactly what it is, but I, I do think that uh, variance is something that, it should be expected this week if we know anything about TPC Sawgrass, and it should be something that you think about as you put together your fantasy lineups because, and we'll get into them a little bit later, but it usually when you see eight or ten times like guys who are playing that much, you start to see some trends emerge, and there are really only a few guys that have course history, and some of the guys that have won the event, even if it's a high-quality player like a Day or a Fowler, have done so after poor finishes the prior year. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, before we get into some of the course history, let's talk a little bit about the course fit. And I think the first thing that stands out to me is when you have that 17th hole, the island green, and you have such a wide array of scores on that hole, um, because it's not it's not a distance hole, it's just an accuracy hole, but you are punished severely if you are inaccurate on that hole. It, as, as a hole itself... Uh, brings a lot of variance in one single shot, the tee shot, in terms of your results. So naturally, this is a course that, in, and I think that whole is just representative of the course as, as, as a whole. When you talk, when players talk about this course, they talk about it as a ball striking course. And if you look at some of the course fit uh, characteristics that uh, Data Golf has on their site in the um, historical events uh, catalog, you see that most of the strokes gained uh, uh, at this tournament in the past have been via approach. About 40% of strokes gained are, are gained via approach on this compared to like a tour average tournament of 34%. So this is an event that skews a little bit more towards um, strokes gained approach, strokes gained tee to green, and, and de-emphasizes putting a little bit because of some of those wide variant numbers you can make on holes where the miss off the greens are so severe. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, one of the things we always try to talk about when we talk about course fit is we're, we're saying that it is heavier on strokes gained approach, 40% versus 34%. So that's still like a small, uh, you know, it, it might be a, a bigger course fit than most, but it's still pretty subtle in the grand scheme of things. And putting matters less, but it's still going to count for, you know, almost a third of the strokes. And so I think that's one of the um, a good example of why, like, it's we're not saying off the tee doesn't matter. We're not saying putting it around the green doesn't matter. All of it's going to matter. It's just slightly subtle. So you don't want to get a guy who's great at approach and, and sucks at all these other categories just because he's going to be good on approach. I think you still need to kind of balance all that stuff. And in general, I think that, um, you know, Jason Day last week being a good example of how strokes gained tee to green metrics aren't the end all be all. Um, if guys have really good short games and they are consistently elite putters. Uh, there's only a few of those, but if, if they're consistently elite with a putter, then that can make up for it. And so therefore, things like long-term adjusted scoring averages and, and short-term adjusted scoring averages are often a good way to go. Certainly. Uh, let's break down some of the traditional uh, course history that we've looked at here. I think it's so interesting kind of going through because what you see is 
you see some guys that I would I would consider as ball strikers. Obviously, as we always talk about the the traditional course history stuff, it's a lot of times just the best players overall have kind of the best course histories. But a lot of the guys who do have decent course histories are ball strikers. But even within those guys who have good course histories, there's uh, there's inconsistency in cuts made. Uh, so Ricky Fowler, who's won here in the past, has a second place finish here, has missed five of eight cuts. Uh, Francesco Molinari, who we love, we applaud his strokes uh, gained approach all the time. Uh, four top tens here in the last seven years. The other three times missed cuts. Uh, Rory has made his last five cuts um, after missing the first three, and he's got three top tens in the last five years. So you just don't find a lot of guys that have really, really consistent, strong course history. The one guy that seems to stand out of the upper echelon players is Sergio, who is definitely known for his tee to green game. Um, he has made the last 12 cuts uh, at this event. He won it uh, over a decade ago. He's got three top tens in the last five years. He's the only guy that really stands out with elite course history um, uh, on a field that you know has generally racked up you know appearances here. Yeah, and a lot of times you would see, like, you would expect to see uh, Matt Kuchar or something like that, um, who you'd be like, oh, well, you know, even if he hasn't won, like, he's probably made the cut a bunch. Turns out Kuchar has won, and he's finished inside the top five another time as well, but he's missed three cuts in the past nine or so years. So definitely seems like uh, they're getting less consistent results. I would say even Sergio's bad years, I was looking back through the course history data viz, and even his bad years, it seemed like he was in the top of the field and strokes gained to green uh so last year he finished 30th um which you'd be like oh maybe you know sergio didn't play so well but he was actually fourth in the field to green he just putted horribly which uh which can happen with sergio it'll be interesting he's not in the best form um so it's going to be an interesting balance between kind of the sergio we know from a long-term perspective the the course fit and then the ownership dynamics when there might be questions about his form so that is I think going to be an interesting and challenging decision to make in the mid tier. Um, the other guy that like Steve Stricker stood out as, as made seven of nine cuts. And so, but he didn't have any really high end finishes. Um, so I thought that was interesting that a lot of times when you're looking at a course, um, you can find a, a cheaper guy who has really strong course history who's maybe priced in the $7,000 range and you can start to see like a couple of those and start to put together a course fit. I think last week it was, you know, a Lucas Glover type player. But you, a lot of times you find kind of like the value guys with with consistency, at least as making the cuts. And I'm not finding a lot of that. So um, it, it'll be a really interesting week to see if ownership spreads out or if we still get the same congested ownership. And there are some awesome pivots that we can. Yeah. Make. Yeah, a couple other guys in the cheaper end that have made a lot of cuts here. Um, and Adam, Adam Scott has some high-end finishes. The questions of, of whether, where Adam Scott is relative to his historical performance is a challenging one. Zach Johnson's also made a decent bun, bun, uh, bunch of cuts here. Um, it's, it's just a challenging course. And when I think about the variance around this course, I think about last year when after the second round, I had a lot of John Rahm, because I pretty much always play a lot of John Rahm, and he was in 10th, tied for 10th, and I was feeling great. You know, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of guys who missed cuts, and I was sitting, sitting there with John Rahm, and there was this huge MDF last year, and he shot 80-something on Saturday and actually didn't get a fourth round. It was one of the most tilting rounds um, I've experienced in my daily fantasy golf career. But it's just crazy that, you know, this course, if the wind picks up, um, it can really get you. Now, I will say... Uh, the early, early forecasts on wind for this event look very muted early in the week. Um, it looks like Thursday and Friday are going to be almost no wind whatsoever, and then Saturday maybe a little bit in the afternoon. Um, we'll see how the forecast kind of shapes up. It looks like it's going to be clear in terms of you know precipitation, so that should be good. Uh, but wind is always a determining factor, especially on these Florida courses that can be open to the wind and can be surrounded with water. Um, as as you know, the wind kicks, the scores tend to kind of multiply. Uh, moving over to um, you know talking about some of the the lineup construction and uh, players by range this week, Colin. I I we were talking a little bit about. The pricing, uh, specifically on DraftKings this week, and I think the gut instinct from everybody when they sit down and look at the pricing and they go through and they make teams is, hey, this pricing feels soft um, because you can get a lot of good players on your teams, but you know, you you actually kind of put some data to it and compared it to you know last week's event in terms of odds to T20. 
Um, and it didn't, it didn't seem any softer or, or harder than traditional DK pricing. It just seems like the field is deeper for everybody uh, to pick from. Yeah, I, I mean, I think is the pricing soft on DraftKings? Yeah, it's a little soft. I think it always is on DraftKings. And um, it seems like it's less so this week. It's, it's more correlated with the top 20 odds. And so there are less guys that are just blatantly mispriced. You definitely feel like you're making great teams, um, but I think if you were to put together, you know, the the odds of getting six of six guys through the cut, um, it's not that different than a normal event. So I, I think um, that maybe is a little bit overrated um, this week, and it's really just it's it's a it's a normal week. You're just dealing with better names that have you know those scary miscut probabilities than you're used to. Yeah, so let's start at the the top of the pricing spectrum, and we've got Rory McIlroy and Jason Day and Jordan Spieth all over 11,000. And the interesting discussion on these types of events is always, you know, when the pricing feels a little bit softer in terms of like you can still build really good lineups around these players, but at the same time, the players in the eights and nines are really, really standout players. How do you approach the kind of 10K plus range, which if you drop down below 11K includes Justin Thomas and Dustin Johnson at 10.3, which is one of the lowest prices we've seen from Dustin Johnson in an event in a while. Um, how do you look at this tier? Does anyone stand out to you? Do the prices matter a bunch in terms of how you're going to deploy plays from this tier? Um, I, th- I think the prices do matter. Part of it, as always, comes down to ownership. So a little bit of a cop-out answer there, I guess. Uh, the first look was that building balance makes more sense. Um, the pricing set up on DraftKings, they always end up having a couple guys who are up in this 11K range. Um, but usually they're, or I would say a year ago, it felt like the form that some of the guys were in, they were a little bit more of a standout in some of these fields and were more dominant favorites. Uh, I think there are enough kind of question marks and swings going on right now with you know the the best five or ten golfers in the world that i think passing on spending 11k plus has more often than not been a profitable decision this year i think the caveat is of course the ownership uh, and obviously any of these guys can win and so if you're able to capture like an 11 percent owned winner uh, then I think that puts you in a really good position. And all you need to do then is kind of get six to six with the rest of the roster. Uh, as far as just the outright best play between Day, Spieth, and, and Rory, I would still lean with Spieth. Um, but I think the ownership is maybe still going to linger there. And I don't know if people are, I don't know if it's because of his withdrawals and injuries and things like that. <laughs> people are sour on Jason Day, but seems like people aren't counting on him to back up his performance from last week. Yeah, I think part of the Jason Day thing is also the stats kind of befuddle people. Because you mentioned, you know, we get so enamored with T to green performances um, as daily fantasy analysts. We view that as a little bit more predictive uh, than your performance around the greens on a year-to-year basis. We've certainly seen that with Jordan Spieth this year. But in general, Day is just so consistently good at adding strokes around the green and with putting that he kind of narrows that gap. And I think people just are a little bit that, – that get stats-oriented. I think people are a little bit more hesitant to kind of believe in that that strong performance holding. And I think it's been more – uh, illustrated in people's minds this year because of Jordan Spieth's fall off in particular, because he was the guy that you always remembered to add, to be able to add strokes um, on 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 the greens so consistently, and then this year just completely torpedoed. And I think that's kind of stuck in people's head, and I think it translates and impacts uh, their viewpoints on on Jason Day. The thing that I thought about, uh, that I noticed about this tier when it first when pricing was first released is a lot of these tournaments usually the favorites kind of huddle around like eight to one. 10 to 1 to win. We've got most of the fav- the highest favorites, Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas, in the initial uh, offshore books listing at, at 14 to 1. Um, so you're not getting the same level of confidence up top, which I think is uh, attributable to the strength of the field in general, that all the odds on the top guys are, are a little bit softer than they usually are. Yeah, and I think that makes sense and kind of um, brings it back to the, it seems like the right way to build um, just for maximizing fantasy points is to build more balanced and probably pass on the the super expensive range. Um, But there might be some merit in, especially in like smaller field GPPs or cash games if you're playing those, but there might be some merit in the larger field stuff um, and in, in other GPPs where you can get super low ownership to 
to try to find ownership leverage. Uh, DJ is an interesting one, and I'm kind of curious where his ownership shakes out by the end of things, because I think people are uh, sour on him because his course history here isn't strong, and he also has not been the world beater that we expected of late, but he definitely rates favorably, and if we can get him at an ownership discount and a price discount, that's something that's really appealing to me in tournaments. Um, like we talked about, there's a lot of variance in this course in general, and I know, you know, he hasn't had the best finishes here, and he's not necessarily the best fit. You usually think about driver instead of approach when you think about DJ. Um, but other guys have come out of nowhere with good finishes, like Fowler um, had missed two cuts before he came in second, and then missed two cuts before he came in first. And so I think you do see some guys who flash up out of nowhere who don't necessarily have good histories coming in. And so I'll definitely end up, if DJ's ownership projection stays low, I'll definitely end up a little bit overweight on him. Um, and uh, But ultimately, there's a lot of merit to these guys. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you know DJ's prices come down so substantially uh, to relative to the this kind of tier. You know, usually he's one of the guys up in the 11s. Now he's at the bottom of the tier. Justin Thomas also on the bottom end of the tier. It almost feels like you know a month ago this tier would have been flipped completely in terms sure. of in terms of where guys were priced, which just speaks to uh, you know the the natural kind of variance among among a golf season. Sometimes you know the top players kind of go in and out of favor. Uh, let's move to the nine to ten k range where we've got at the top of that range Ricky Fowler at 9,600, followed by John Rahm at 9,300, Justin Rose at uh, 9,100, and Sergio Garcia at 9,000. I think this will obviously be a, a tier that, in terms of like building top you know top 20 optimals in terms of getting players across the cut and stuff i think this tier will be a little bit more popular but i think this tier might go a little bit under owned because of the strength of the 8k tier and then natural roster you know building and people wanting to fill out the salary going up into the 10k tier so i think there might be a little bit more leverage to be had in this tier on the whole yeah that'll be interesting if it comes to fruition um and uh, I mean, all these guys are playable uh, for various different reasons. I think Garcia's kind of form is the most questionable. And I think if you were to toggle the customizable projections to weight long-term form a little bit more heavily, and I, I think he pops a little bit more than he does right now, uh, maybe he's slightly overpriced um, and maybe his ownership will be a little bit higher than the rest of them. I'm kind of curious just to see where it settles. Uh, I feel like Rose and Casey have to carry ownership. I, I, like, no one was talking about Casey last week. He still carried a little bit of ownership, but not as high as I thought it should have been. And uh, nobody's really talking about him again, despite, you know, ho-hum, another top five finish. So I like Casey for sure out of this group. Um, if he's 15 to 20% owned, I still think he's a good play. Um, and I think that Rom probably offers the most leverage for tournaments. Like you said, he was... He was there for a little bit last year, and then he was gone. <laughs> yeah, just one awful round. And I think also it feels like Rom's had, you know, poor form of late because I think the feeling from the DFS industry is that he hasn't lived up to expectations. And, of course, he won on the European tour <laughs> in, his, in his home country, but that doesn't count for DFSers in their mind. So, like, you look at the, the form, and, you know, he's had that win, then he had a fourth before that, a 64th, a 20th, like – not kind of the really high-end contending Rom that people had gotten kind of used to and frankly a little bit spoiled with early in his career. Now you've got John Rom back down to those prices that I think people were playing aggressively early in his career when he was uh, living up to the bill. And now I think you're going to get a, a little bit of ownership fall off just because I think he's he's just in this weird price point where like I, I feel like right below him with Rose, Sergio, Paul Casey, Henrik Stenson, uh, we'll get into the eights a little bit more with Tiger and Hideki and Phil and all those guys. I think those guys will carry a little bit more ownership, might leave Rom as a pretty interesting tournament play. Let's move to the eight to nine K range where Paul Casey headlines out at 8,900 followed by Henrik Stenson, Patrick Reed, Tiger Woods, Hideki Matsuyama, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, Tommy Fleetwood, Francesco Molinari. For the first time all year, it feels like Molinari is now priced in a range that is not uh, super attractive right off the bat to us because he's gotten out of that 7K range. And then Kevin Kisner at 8,000. Before we get into this 8 to 9K range, because we do have Tiger and Phil uh, priced pretty closely together, 
news broke this week, or I guess I shouldn't say news broke. Phil made a comment. Phil tried to break news. Yeah, Phil tried to break news. Phil is angling for some guaranteed dollars. And, you know, bless him. I mean, get your get your money, Phil. Uh, but he brought back the idea of, you know, everybody's talking about the excitement of the Phil – uh, Ricky Tiger pairing this week and how it's like a headline and we all want to we all want to see them go head to head and he's like why don't we just cut out you know the middleman on all this and do like a you know a head to head showdown and it got me thinking back to you know I don't know if uh, I was I was like foggy on my memory of this but Monday Night Golf this used to be a thing when I was growing up for a little while and I remember it like under the lights, Tiger versus Duval, it was this big thing. And so I got on, you know, my favorite uh, source of information, Wikipedia. And I started looking through all the different battles that they had. And I remember the battles at Bighorn against Sergio and whatnot. And so Phil's angling for this, you know, get the sponsorship money there, get the TV money there, put it in prime time, get the head to head Phil versus Tiger. I think that would draw a big audience. And I think it would be a, a pretty fun uh, a pretty fun event for golf in general. Yeah, I think it would drive a big audience for sure. Uh, I love, you know, Phil's like, let's just cut out the rest of the field who's better than me <laughs> and let me play against Tiger because <laughs> I think I could still take him. Um, it would definitely be an awesome event for sure. Must watch television. Maybe DraftKings would even find a way to make a, a showdown type slate for it. Um, I, I would rather see it if they were throwing, no, forget the sponsors, like throw down your own money. Oh, yeah. Five mil each you know, play skins, put mics on them, put mics on the caddies, like, you know, impromptu longest drive contest, closest to the pin, all that kind of stuff. Like that's, that's, that's what I want to see, but it seems far fetched for that to happen. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Um, I think while we, while we will not have necessarily the head to head, uh, you know, uh, showdown this week, them being grouped together for two rounds, we at least get that. And I'm sure we will see all of the Tiger and Phil shots uh, in the coverage this week. But getting back to the DFS side of things in this 8K range, this range is just loaded. Um, it's not only loaded with good players, but I think it's no, it's loaded with players that I would consider, um, if you were to ask on like the course fit side of the equation, this would be a course that fits them pretty well. Uh, you know, when I think of like ball strikers and strokes gain tee to green, I think of guys like Paul Casey. I think of Henrik Stenson. I think of Hideki Matsuyama. Tiger has been that guy in his return. The putter left him a little bit last week, but he's been so good uh, tee to green. Uh, the driver at times has struggled, but on this course, you you don't need the driver as much. Um, Phil's been really good. Uh, with the approach game this year, Bryson's been, um, you know, inconsistent at times, but overall think, thought of more as a, a, a ball striker. Tommy Fleetwood. There are a lot of guys here that, you know, if you wanted to have a little bit of an angle on the course, helping their type of performance naturally uh, fit. So who in this range kind of draws your eye? Yeah, the um, the first ones are the two that I wrote up for the Associated Press piece, and it was, you know, I usually am a little bit more conservative with my takes there, and it was, it was Paul Casey and Henrik Stenson, and it was, I mean, it's just pretty easy to justify playing them that you would not blink if their prices were right next to Fowler, Rom, Rose, and Garcia in the $9,000 range, but you're kind of getting a nice discount on them. Um, Stenson definitely has the course fit uh, as far as I believe he's number one on the PGA Tour and strokes gained approach this year coming off his best finish at the Masters uh, I'm not sure if it's ever but at least in a long time finished fifth and his his form has been good and he's going to carry a fair bit of ownership um, Casey seems like people you know still aren't really talking about him maybe they'll still play him a little bit but I like Casey and Stenson the best out of this group and I think it's also one of the times one of the first times that uh, we're probably over market on Tiger Woods. Yeah, it's it's been a weird ride for for us with Tiger during this uh, all the hoopla of having him back. We were you know a little bit hesitant to go full bore on Tiger early on, and he had some great performances. And then of late, it seems like the market started to shift away. The pricing has come back down, and of course for us, you know, mathematical based model, we get a little bit more um, we get a little bit more insight into how well he's playing. We get now a better price tag, and all the sort of sudden he's starting to pop as a little bit more of a strong value. I think at 8,600, I think the ownership will be there uh, because I think this is a little bit different than last week. Uh, not a ton in terms of the fact that like last week he was low nines, but there were some guys right
right around him that we're going to soak up ownership. I think he might be a little bit more of a focal point this week just because he held on last week while a guy like Hideki around him kind of MDF'd last week. Tommy Fleetwood had a really disappointing week last week, and Fleetwood was soaking up so much of that ownership uh, last week. So I think some of the reactionary tendencies and our natural biases as DFS players might shift some of the ownership away from a guy like Tommy Fleetwood after last week. There might be some opportunities for leverage um, in terms of being able to get on some of those guys. Fleetwood in particular, to me, looks like a guy that could just get lost because Bryson did so well last week. Bill did so well last week. The name value of Tiger then up in pricing. You've got Paul Casey and Stenson. Fleetwood seems a guy like chalk fail one week, now a similarly strong course fit, um, it seems like a potential bounce back spot for Tommy Fleetwood. Yeah, it definitely could be. The one thing it's worth noting between Tiger and Phil is Tiger actually played better tee to green last week. Yeah. Gained, gained seven and a half strokes versus around six for Phil. Just putted so poorly. I, I think we're at a point now in DFS golf that people are more aware of that than they might have been last year. And so I think you're right that Tiger will carry ownership. Um, I don't think it's enough for me to exclude him from my player pool. Like, I, I think he'll, if he's 20%, I think he still offers some value in tournaments when you consider the probabilities that we have on him for finishing inside the top 20. Um, Hideki was another guy that I was digging into just a little bit, trying to understand what was going on with his round. Definitely seems like, you know, he, he putted poorly, uh, but the ball striking wasn't exceptional either. So I, I have, um, I guess qualitative concerns with that i do think fleetwood is going to offer a lot of leverage i'm not sure if he'll end up you know i'm kind of curious to see how the ownership will get split between him and molinari uh, both guys typically carry heavy ownership but molinari is typically a thousand dollars cheaper <laughs> and fleetwood's t- typically like 600 bucks more and so right now people are talking about molinari more maybe it's because of the good finish last week maybe it's because He's one of the few guys that has multiple high-end finishes here. But I don't know, man. It's going to be a sad week if I have to fade a Chalk Molinari in the $8,000 range and he like wins the tournament or something. That is the craziest thing about DFS golf in general is the fact that you know Fleetwood has been Chalk for months in the 9K-plus range, and finally the price comes all the way down. Molinari has been like, favorable but not heavy chalk in the low sevens and some people had kind of jumped off after he went through some struggles there um and now the price comes up and people are reacting in the exact opposite way that you think of relative to the price moves um it's just one of the strangest things about dfs and golf in in particular that seems to happen often um one guy i did want to touch on because we seem to be light on him almost every week is, is bryson dechambeau and he's had kind of like the, I would call it the Justin Thomas light of results, where it's like when he does well, he does really well. And then when he doesn't do well, he's like toward, he's missing cuts. So like the, the level of consistency hasn't been great. The level of consistency T to green hasn't been as great. And now you've got, while well, almost every player in this field that played last week saw their price come down because this field is so much stronger, Bryson's price went up. And so for me, it's a clear fade opportunity if the ownership is going to be there and your early ownership projections seem to suggest that it will be. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see where his ownership is. Uh, I hope it's really high because then I can just, I mean, I manually adjusted this number down and it's still pretty high and it would just be easier to fade. It's really tough um, to get a read on him right now. Like you said, the outlier upside in the different strokes gain metrics has been through the roof and and it's like Justin Thomas, it's happening in all of the metrics at different <laughs> points in time. And I don't know if there's something about him with the way that he plays that he's able to string the rounds together. And I'm sure that's why the data golf projections are a bit lower on him than the market in the whole is because he has a bunch of bad rounds that he strings together too. And uh, you would expect that over the course of time that maybe his performances would stop being so exceptionally good and exceptionally bad and he'd start to have some average ones in there. Um, and and who knows if that'll come to fruition or if he's the type of guy that when he's in contention, he's dialed in and focused, and when, maybe when he's not, then he loses it a little bit. Not really sure what to do um, with projecting him, but I do think that if he carries heavy ownership, it'll be an easy enough fade. Uh, Phil's another guy, you know, 
probably a, a good DFS play in this range. Probably a guy that is capable of three to five water balls. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not going to go crazy overboard on him, but seems seems solid in general. I think you know talked a lot about these two ranges. I, there's not too many spots that seem egregious as far as ownership. I think um, maybe you have some consideration on Henrik and what you want to do there. Maybe some consideration on Tiger and maybe some on Bryson, Molinari, Fleetwood. Um, but you, I think it's not so bad just to play the guys you like best. Yeah, I, it doesn't seem like anyone's going to really outpace the field by really substantial margins in terms of ownership this week. It looks a little bit more spread between tiers, which helps you make a little bit more of the decisions straight on the golfer. A guy like Bryson, for me, is a play on ownership always, just because he's either he's so good or so bad. I'd just rather have the leverage in my favor um, in either direction. So I almost don't worry about his projection. I just worry about his projected ownership and kind of make my plays um, off of him there. Let's move to the 7 to 8K range. Usually this is the range that helps determine um, who's at the top of tournaments. If you get this range right, usually you can kind of ascend up. It's a deep range. It's got lots of names in it. Um, Bubba Watson, Alex Noren, Matt Kuchar, Brooks Kepka, Mark Leishman, um, some of the guys that, you know, higher pedigree names that we've seen throughout the year. Some guys who've been playing well of late, like Billy Horschel, uh, Cam Smith, um, ball strikers like Patrick Cantley, Emiliano Grillo, Rafa Cabrera Bayo, Zach Johnson. It is a very deep, deep range. Um, who are the types of plays that stand out to you from this 7 to 8K tier? Yeah, I'd say the, the first thing I, that stands out to me is just that this is uh, seems to be consistently the range to look for leverage. Um, if, if you can find it up at the top, great. That's a really nice opportunity, but it's not always available. And there's always leverage available in this range because there's so many names. And ownership still seems to congest a little bit. Um, and so a lot of times you're finding, you know, there might be 15, 20 guys this week that are between 20 and 25% odds to finish inside the top 20, but they're going to have varying ownership as high as almost 20% down to the same probability players with like three to 5% ownership. So I'm going to be looking for those opportunities to find the, the low ownership. Um, two guys who I'm really curious about the final ownership number when it comes in on Wednesday and where it'll be. Um, no one's really talking about Matt Kuchar right now, but he's just been such a cash game staple for so long that it seems like there has to be some ownership that comes with it. And I think Alex Noren up at the top end are um, guys that uh, seem like they would align with uh, course fit. I know that Noren finished really strongly here last year. It was actually number one in the field in tee to green uh, in route to his 10th place finish. And so he's a guy that's on my radar. Um, one of the guys that in the higher end I'm, I'm not keen on is going to be Brooks Kepka. Uh, I think from a model perspective, he rates as an okay leverage play. Uh, but we do know that he was coming back from the injury. We didn't really know how to evaluate his data from the Zurich Classic because uh, it was a team event. And it seemed like none of his kind of peripherals were firing in the event at the Wells Fargo. And so... Uh, I think I can probably take a, a week or two to see some signs of life for him from him before jumping back on. Yeah, certainly there's enough plays in this range that you're going to have to do that with uh, plenty of guys that you're just going to have to kind of narrow your player pool down a little bit this week. I know one of the names that was getting a lot of buzz in our Slack chat, um, which again, if you have uh, premium subscription access over at Daily Roto, one of the benefits that you get there is the Slack chat, which um, not only has access to myself and Colin and Mike Leone and, and uh, all of our team who hangs around in that Slack, but um, a lot of dedicated DFS players who are doing a lot of research themselves and sharing opinions around. It's a great way to kind of help collaborate on, on research throughout the course of the week. One name that was brought up early on there uh, when pricing was released and then uh, that they heard it early in the week, but tags don't seem to be picking it up in terms of early ownership projections was Tony Finau at 7,500. What are your expectations for Finau? Um, in terms of, in terms of course fit, usually you want Tony on kind of longer courses to leverage that length, but he's been such a good ball striker the last few years that I don't necessarily think this is a bad fit for him. And coming off the strong performance from a DK scoring perspective last week, do you think 7,500 will garner attention? You would think it would. Uh, one of the struggles early in the week with the ownership stuff is you're trying to figure out with like the tags with from FanshareSports.com, who does a really awesome job of kind of gathering the sentiment, and it's definitely an important part of the ownership model. Uh, one of the inputs is their tags, and 
it, it matters, but sometimes you look at the tags and you're like, is this really, like, why are they, why are people talking about this guy? Like Ian Poulter, for example. And then you're like, okay, they're just talking about Ian Poulter because he did so well here last year. Um, and with Emiliano Grio, it seems like people are talking about him because they, they want to play him. Um, and his ownership looks absurd to the point where even though he rates well, it would have to be a full fade if he's at 20% ownership. And Finan's got nothing right now, no buzz. But he's he always carries ownership, yep. and that's the same thing I was saying about Kucher. Is you know by the time I publish the final projections, like there's no way I'm not going to make an, a manual adjustment there. Um, maybe he stays below 10%, but um, it would be hard to imagine doesn't get close to there, uh, especially because of how strong his DraftKings finish was last week. I think he finished uh, what 22nd or something, but he was inside like the top six for DraftKings uh, scoring points because of all the birdies, streaks, and, and whatnot that he put together. So, yeah, Finau's going to be in play. Um, how much in play is going to depend on the final ownership projection because uh, there's plenty of names to, to like, and so I'm going to be trying to target the guys that I can get a low percentage on. Yeah, just at 7,500, just that price range alone, we have Patrick Cantlay, Tony Finau, Emiliano Grillo, Brian Harmon, and Zach Johnson, all who I think are very reasonable plays. Uh, the data golf projections always seem to like Patrick Cantlay. This would seem to be a decent course fit for Cantlay. He did uh, come off a strong last performance where he looked a little bit more like himself in terms of consistently adding uh, the tee the to green uh, strokes. Is Cantlay a guy that you are concerned about ownership in terms of because he is he does seem to carry DFS popularity, um, or is he a guy that is such a strong play that the the ownership wouldn't wouldn't uh, deter you unless it really got into like the twenties? If it got to twenty, I'd have to get off. Um, but if it stays close to ten or so, then I'm definitely still uh, he's definitely still in the mix for me at that. Um, you know, at that ownership level and his top 20 probabilities, he would rate similarly to, to Finau at, you know, 8% ownership or so. So still in on Cantley, still a guy that's going to be in the mix. Um, but if he hit 20, then he's not a, a smash play. Um, I would consider taking him uh, if he, if it kind of stays now, like I consider setting my cap on him at like 29% or so ownership. So he would be kind of close to a, a max play for me across my rosters. Um, and like, like you said, between basically from Cantlay down through the 7,400 range where you get Scott Haddon list RCB, like all of these guys have between 17 and 25% odds to T20 and, uh, there's not a ton separating them. And so, uh, the ownership is ultimately, I know it's kind of like a lame thing to say because it's, it's more fun to talk about the different strokes gain buckets or whatever, but at the end of the day, like I think that the ownership compared to the probabilities is really what produces DFS results, and so that's what I'm going to use to guide me. Yeah, and one other guy a little bit lower than that, Webb Simpson. Um, you would think that this would be uh, the type of the type of course that would suit Webb Simpson well. Only 7,300. Um, he's been one of these guys who's been kind of just steadily chugging along this season. Uh, doesn't have a, a win under his belt, but has like a lot of solid top 20 finishes. He's one of these guys in the low 7,000s that I think will gain some ownership, but like Cantlay, unless the ownership was kind of getting up into the high teens, uh, low 20s, I, it wouldn't deter me either. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, Webb seems like he'll carry some ownership. He still seems like he'd be in the mix, like you said. Um, he, he also has like an erratic course history, maybe missed half his cuts. It looked like just eyeballing the course history chart and uh, it seems like that's the case for a lot of guys i guess that um one thing that as we're kind of talking through this that is in the back of my mind is there's not a ton separating some of these plays as far as their probabilities of doing well um and maybe it's a week where i don't load up on quite as big of a core yep. as i might and you just kind of take the the shotgun approach and hope for carnage and hope you get some stuff that kind of sticks together because at the end of the day if you're not building teams that are dramatically different as far as their expected outcomes then that diversification is a great thing yeah i think it's a week where i'm gonna have a lot of guys in this low sevens to mid thousand seven thousands range in like the you know 10 to 18 percent ownership range for my personal exposure 
Um, so if one of them hits, I do have significant leverage on the field, assuming these guys are sub 8% owned. Um, but I'm not destroying my roster by kind of going, or my pool of players, by kind of going all in on anyone. Uh, the one guy before we get into the 6,000s range, I know we always got to talk about this is, I mean, we are the, the home of the Steve Stricker podcast for Daily Fantasy Golf. Uh, Strick at 7,000. Again, a course that really distance isn't a determining factor in any way, shape, or form would seem to benefit Steve Stricker. Rates as one of our strongest values. Once again, rates as one of the players that will probably go under-owned because people just don't like to play Steve Stricker. I assume he's going to be a, a favorite of yours as well in lineup building this week. Stricker, baby. 1% ownership. <laughs> I mean, got to do it. I think we got him at like 23% odds to T20. Um, if we end up running the, the betting, I bet he'll end up being a guy we bet again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just seems to happen. But hey, Molly's up in the 8,000s. We can't really go for him. We got to stay on brand. No, Stricker seems like it's a, it's a good play. I think if there's a course that is going to fit uh, Stricker in the, the way you think about it, um, I think this seems like a good one. He's obviously one of the best putters. Uh, I don't expect an elite high-end finish. Um seems like a guy that it's really easy to get over the field on and he's a guy that i would trust to to have a good probability of making the cut i think we got him about 65 percent odds to make the cut which stands out in this range and seems like a guy that i'd even be comfortable with in three max if i needed the savings um a lot, lot of plays in this range so like like i said it seems like it might be not you might not want to get careless as far as going all in on someone uh, but stricker seems like the cheapest guy that I can get super comfortable with. I think he's the only guy priced at $7,000 or below that has higher than 20% odds to finish inside the top 20, which is um, sort of a, a arbitrary threshold that I use to try to narrow down my player pool. Yeah, and as we kind of descend below the $7,000 range, we kind of talk about this on a weekly basis. There's usually a big discrepancy between the sevens and the sixes in our mind in terms of value and opportunity, and that certainly looks to be the case to th this week. We talked about so many different plays in the 7,000s that look like really strong plays, and in the 6,000s, it's hard to find anyone. I will say... That, and I don't know how my brand has gotten here this, this year um, because it was the exact opposite for the last few years. But Keegan Bradley, again, 6900 is a really good price tag for Keegan Bradley. And this is a guy that up until last week had been consistently adding strokes uh, gained approach and strokes gained tee to green in wide margins. And if you get me on a course, get me a course that de-emphasizes putting a little bit relative to the field, relative to the tour average, I'm in on Keegan. Um, you get him at this price tag at 6,900. I'm once again in on Keegan. I don't know if he'd make my like three max uh, groups or my like single entry, which he has been the in recent weeks a little bit. But he's projecting again for relatively low ownership. Um, I think he's a decent course fit, and I think he's really for me. He's the one guy below the 7,000 range that I am substantially interested in. Yeah, I think. Um... It makes sense. He wouldn't make a three max or single entry cut for me. Um, but the the one percent leverage. I mean, if you, I don't know if I haven't decided if I'm going to build 150 teams or not. Um, it's a compelling enough price point in tournament that um, maybe I will. Um, and he might make the cut there. It, it's easy. You can just get four or five percent of them, and you don't have to go crazy. And you have a little bit of exposure. You can you can stay on brand, whatever whatever brand that is. Uh, the other guy jumped out to me a little bit that I wanted to dig into just because he was a guy that I was playing with a good bit of consistency earlier in the season. And it would seem like it would be a good course fit, but he's not really popping in the probability model, partly due to the strength of field, and that's Ches Reed. Yeah. So he was another guy that I, I maybe expected to um, project a little bit better, and I kind of want to dig another level deeper on you know his game because I, I think I could you know consider putting him into the mix as well. Um, I would say if you are building uh, 150 teams, you know I think we're going to get lower ownership than normal on the 11,000 plus range, and because of that, um, I think you're going to need to go into the $6,000 range, and there's. There are guys down here who project for 0.1% ownership who they might not be the best players, but they at least have a pulse. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be some options uh, down there. I don't think anybody sub six is going to carry or sub seven, excuse me, is going to carry ownership. I think all those guys immediately are sub five percent owned, pretty much. 
Um, it looks like all the ownership is going to condense around, you know, the mid sevens, the the mid eights. That looks to be kind of the favored bin um, early on going into this week. Uh, Colin, we have a few minutes left here. In terms of, and you you said you weren't decide, you were undecided whether you were going to build 150 teams this week. I think I am going to build 150 teams this week. And in terms of like my normal strategy relative to this event in particular, because we talked about some of the oddities of this tournament and the variance that it has induced over the years, I think for myself personally, I'm going to have lower max exposures than I usually do, a little bit wider player pool. Uh, then I might usually have that also goes into the field strength of this. It's harder to cut down the number of plays uh, when the field is so strong. What would be your your take or your recommendation to somebody uh, carrying out the the attempt at trying to max enter uh, some of these uh, MME tournaments? Yeah, one of the things that um, I've been doing when I do, whether it's uh, like past couple of weeks, I've been building you know my normal kind of three max entries, and then I'll put 20 into the $4, um, 20 max. I'll find the secondary $4, 20 max. I'll find the $3, 20 max. And so I'll get like a decent number of teams there when they're not running a huge MME at a low price point. Um, and I think one of the things that I've been doing most weeks is using kind of the uh, top 20 odds as a gauge for where I cap my exposure for someone. So if they're like 20% to T20, maybe I, I want at most 20% of that guy, even if they rate um, really strongly relative to their price. Uh, and this week, I think I would be more conservative than that and probably um, focus on more diversification. Uh, I think the other thing that I would be um, not scared to do, particularly because the MME event is uh, fairly top heavy, uh, would be really trying to find leverage in avoiding some of the chalky players uh, just because, I don't know, for those weeks end up, the weeks where, you know, three to 5% of people are getting six of six, like those end up being the weeks that I'm winning and the weeks where it's 20%, like I haven't had a lot of success. So um, as long as I can set myself to up to capitalize, if there is carnage uh, via leverage and diversification, then I think, you know, it seems like uh, at least as far as how this course is played historically, that could be a favorable position. Yeah, I think this week when the course induces more variance, you want to lean more on the projected ownerships uh, in some ways even than the projections, um, just because I think the projections are going to have a little bit wider error bar than usual because the the course. So lean on the projected ownerships, which are a little bit tighter and stable uh, to kind of make some decisions. So uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto. Uh, for myself, Drew Dinkmeyer and Colin Drew, I want to thank you all for listening. If you're checking us out on iTunes, make sure to please leave us a review. Give us uh, five stars if you'd like. Uh, but ratings and reviews help keep this uh, this uh, show in, in, uh, in our time uh, free, free of charge. So thank you all for listening this week. We will be back next week again with another edition of Going for the Green presented by Daily Roto. 